Welcome to Social PR Secrets. My name is Lisa Beyer and I will be your host. Today's guest is Mitchell Corbert. Mitchell is a subject matter expert when it comes to CBD, hemp, and cannabis, and he's been writing about it in the journalism field for more than 10 years. He is also a lecturer at a university teaching on the subject. The reason why I wanted to bring Mitchell on to discuss the topic of writing about CBD, cannabis, and hemp is because it's a very gray area. There is a lot of misinformation and myths out there that is reported not intentionally, but by major media outlets and also brands representing the industry. So if you are in the PR field or you're marketing a brand that is CBD, hemp, cannabis related, it's important to understand where to find the facts and how to separate the facts from the myths and the misinformation. And also you don't want to be making the mistake of reporting something that is not accurate. So Mitchell is here to help guide us through this subject and also talk about some tips and tricks if you are pitching the media and also some writing tips. So he is a wealth of information. Welcome Mitchell. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Social PR Secrets. I am here today with Mitchell Colbert. Hey, Mitchell, how are you? He is going to be talking about CBD and writing about CBD from a journalist standpoint and also for PR pros that might be having CBD clients, cannabis clients. And ironically, an article just came out from Rolling Stone magazine called How PR Professionals Can Change the Conversation Around Cannabis. So this is perfect timing. So Mitchell, why don't you just start with, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became such an expert writer on the topic of cannabis, CBD, hemp. Sure. Yeah, I grew up with it. Like many people in California, my family had plants around me from a young age, but I didn't start using until I was uh, a lot older for medical reasons. I was diagnosed with uh, manic depression. So uh, medicated with cannabis for a while. Don't really have any symptoms of that anymore, thankfully, but I still use cannabis daily for, you know, just stress, chronic pain after a bike injury. So I'm very much a medical user, have been for years. Professionally, I went to school for political science and I worked on the Proposition 19 campaign way back in 2010. That was the first time we tried to legalize. Well, not the first time. There's time in the 70s, but the first time recently we tried to legalize cannabis in California. Uh, We came 3% away from passing. And, you know, the bill wasn't perfect, so I'm kind of glad we got the bill we did instead of Prop 19, but it would have been nice to get things going 10 years sooner. But finally, we do have legalization here in California. I've worked with a lot of nonprofits. I worked at Harborside Health Center, one of the biggest names in the industry, now just Harborside. But uh, I was there back in the Harborside Health Center days and been a writer, written over 100 articles for over a dozen media outlets. So really kind of done a bit of everything, worn a, a lot of hats. Uh, in this industry, as it were. I also did some consulting, uh, helped people get licensed in some very restrictive states in the Midwest and the East Coast. I spent the last couple of years running my own lobbying firm, specifically focused on getting companies more access to recycling and uh, sustainable options. Uh, and my efforts in Colorado actually resulted in uh, an amendment and uh, changes to regulations, changes in the statute. And now finally, for the first time since they legalized, companies can legally recycle their garbage. And I mean, recycle the recyclables, I should say, but up to this point, it was all garbage. So this is a great step in dealing with that trash epidemic that we don't always talk about in the cannabis industry. Um, yes, totally. Well, I mean, the oh, way God, that- I, I get terrible if I didn't mention this. Most recently, like this past week, I just became the executive director of a new nonprofit, the Ethical Data Alliance. And we're looking to use a uh, 
blockchain and cryptocurrency solutions to help secure data privacy within the cannabis and hemp industries, but also further research and the sharing of that data in an ethical way. Well, we could have you on like five different episodes and talk about all these different topics, and we will. Today, I really want to focus this interview about, you know, from a PR standpoint, I have clients, Ohio Energetics is one of them that are in the CBD space. And before that, I really didn't know really anything about cannabis, CBD, hemp. And, you know, as a journalist also, I mean, you're a well-versed journalist on the subject matter of, you know, of hemp and CBD and cannabis, and you've kind of like self-educated because of your experience, right? And then probably got into it. But if you're, let's say, um, you know, a, a PR professional or a journalist that maybe works for a health and beauty publication, and now they're writing a story about this new health and beauty CBD product, what advice do you give? Like, where do you start? Because it seems like it's it, it's still confusing to me, like hemp, cannabis, CBD are used interchangeably. And I know from you know, working with OH Energetics, there's a lot of misinformation out there in, in publications that you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't believe would be writing any accurate type of stories. So how do you, like, where do you start? We'll start with that. Yeah. Yeah. And that can be really tricky. Um, especially because it, online, it's really easy to make anything look very legitimate, very believable, even if it's not accurate. Um, and a lot of people don't even seek things out by Google searching. They're just looking on Facebook where the quality of information isn't even as good. For me, as someone who's self-educated around these things as a researcher in school, I did a lot of Google searching uh, on Google Scholar back when that was a thing. I believe Google's kind of changed it. So there's not exactly a Google Scholar option anymore, but there's still ways to look up studies. My advice is if someone wants to do Google searches to find real quality research, there's a couple things you can add to your search. It's one of them is four letters, N-C-B-I. It's an acronym that stands for the uh, government, it's the government agency that funds a lot of these studies, but also PUB, P-U-B, MED, M-E-D, PubMed. So either N-C-B-I or PubMed, adding that to your Google search, that's going to pull up a lot of scholarly studies, stuff that's government funded, stuff that is, you know, when, when people want to see the research, that's what they're talking about not blogs, not high times, not any of the other publications that I've written for, you know, like I pride the research and journalism that I've done. Uh, I pride my journalism because of the research that I've done. I know that everything I've written is accurate. The science is right. I'm not presenting opinion as facts. I can't speak for everyone else out there though. We live in an epidemic of propaganda masquerading as news. So, you know, it's a problem we're all dealing with, especially due to the last four years in this country. But, you know, by no means is it just America. It is a global phenomenon and it's nothing new for us. It's just really easy now, thanks to the internet. So those scholarly studies are great, specifically CBD. There's a great website called Project CBD. I believe it's projectcbd.org. They've been around since like the early days. They were actually... Uh, working with Harborside when Harborside first re-identified CBD thanks to lab testing back in the earlier 2000s. Harborside was real, a real big proponent of lab testing in the early days for potency and contamination issues, but then they found this CBD cannabinoid that no one had really seen because it had been largely bred out of the entire uh, genetic supply. Project CBD, the guys involved with that, were really instrumental in bringing CBD back into the gene pool uh, and helping Harborside with that early CBD project. So I would definitely uh, recommend a lot of people check out Project CBD. 
great research there, really scientific quality research there. Let's see. Can you, I mean, there's can a- you, yeah. Can you also kind of just the, the ABCs of CBD, like just break down some yeah. of the, the terminology, so, like CBD absolutely. hemp cannabis. Yeah. So like breaking down, like the biggest difference everyone needs to know what separates hemp from cannabis. So in cannabis, that's your, your species name, but also it's another word for marijuana. That's the high THC stuff. When we say high THC, that means a federal cutoff of 0.3%. It is above 0.3% THC by dry weight. That's now cannabis. That's not hemp anymore. So that's legally what separates hemp from cannabis. There's a lot of misinformation out there about, oh, hemp, it's all male plants. It's not true. You can have more males in hemp because you're not growing for that cannabinoid content, but it's not desirable because then you're going to have your female plants producing seeds. Unless seeds are your goal, you really don't need male plants around, even if you're growing hemp. There's another myth that, oh, hemp's just for fiber. Well, yeah, it used to be largely for fiber, but also for seeds. Hemp was always grown for a bunch of reasons. That's why there's such a huge amount of genetic diversity, even on the hemp side of things. You know, like with cannabis, I heard something like there's over 3,000 strains or cultivars out there. With hemp, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's very diverse. And let's see. So CBD, that is, you know, by weight, one of your most two common cannabinoids. THC is generally speaking, your most common one. CBD is also very common. They both start as a different cannabinoid, uh, CBG. And CBG, when combined with the right synthase, a THC synthase or a CBD synthase or a CBC synthase, CBG can become three different cannabinoids. So THC, very common. That's what has that euphoric effect. CBD, no euphoric effect at all. And I make the distinction on euphoria, not psychoactivity, because technically speaking, everything is psychoactive. Coffee is psychoactive. If it affects your mind, it's psychoactive. So really what people are talking about there is euphoria. Does it make you feel giggly? You know, I think think that's where the misconception comes in a lot of, you know, if you're not living in the state of California, where maybe people aren't as educated on the differences that we're talking about right now, but, you know, everybody assumes, a lot of people assume that CBD is in the same category as marijuana and that, you know, it had, it, it has the same type of like high effect, which it doesn't. So yeah. maybe just kind of break that, that differentiator sure. down. And, and for me, I really prefer the word cannabis because that's like the genetic name, the species name. There's a lot of stigma attached to the word marijuana, but you know, there's a lot of debate around that as well. So I personally just try to avoid using it if I can to just stay out of that debate. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, so CBD is psychoactive like THC, but it's not euphoric. If you look at the actual chemistry in the body, they interact with different sites. We have this endocannabinoid system, not just humans, animals too. Your pets have an endocannabinoid system. That's why cannabis for pets is a thing. And I don't just mean dogs and cats, even fish have an endocannabinoid system. But and um, that was just recently discovered too, not, not that long ago, right? I, you know, specific species, they're always looking at new things, but like we've known for at least a few years now, I mean, the whole endocannabinoid system, it's a new thing. We, right. we first discovered it like back in the 90s. So it's a very recent research field of study, but best we can tell if it has a spine, if it has a central nervous system, there's endocannabinoids, there's an endocannabinoid system. Okay, great. In our bodies, there's two main receptor sites, CB1, CB2, THC, anandamide, one of your endocannabinoids, they both interact with CB1, that produces those high feelings. CBD, on the other hand, and many other cannabinoids don't really interact that strongly with CB1 at all. That's why there's none of that high 
they're mostly an interaction at CB2 and a bunch of other sites in your body. Like CBD is actually amazing because it has more interactions with these non-cannabinoid sites than the cannabinoid system. It interacts with the pain uh, signaling channels in your body. That's why it has a really interesting mechanic to deal with pain. THC also has a really cool way of dealing with pain. And the great thing about both those cannabinoids is they work in different ways. I know it's hard for companies to talk about this stuff because like the FDA makes things very difficult. You know, there's very specific ways companies have to talk about the medical effects, or I guess I should say not the medical effects because you can't make medical claims about CBD. It's a really frustrating situation actually, because, you know, it'd be great if companies could talk more about these medical benefits in an honest way with their customers, but the federal government is being very restrictive. And I mean, you know, those warning letters are no joke. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about that too, but, you know, just having a client in the CBD industry and then having to pitch the different stories to the media. I mean, some of the media won't even, you know, they won't touch a story centered around CBD because it just falls into the same category as far as they are concerned about, you know, then you can't really it's advertise. Drug. Yeah, it's a drug. So there's a lot of education that is still in its infancy stages, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, so where, what are some, what's some advice that you can give if you are new, you know, and really pointing to this article, how PR professionals can change the conversation around cannabis. Like what are some of the things you liked about this article that we can, can kind of dive into and unpack? Yeah, I, I really loved, uh, what was his name? I think it was Stu. Yeah. I really love Stu's points in that article. You know, PR professionals can do a whole lot more. Um, he also brings up the really good point about Hollywood TV, that whole sector of things can do a lot more in how they depict cannabis use uh, in mm-hmm. front of big audiences. But that's kind of a separate issue there. In terms of PR professionals, my big advice would be, you know, if you're representing a CBD brand, if you're representing a cannabis brand, recognize that you are an educator and a mediator. You are mediating between that company and the public, that's the PR side of things, but also that company and the media. And that media is an intermediary to reach the public. And it's not just an effort of mediation, you also have to educate them. Uh, And that can be very tricky because a lot of these journalists are totally naive to the cannabis industry. I see a lot of uh, things in the media frequently that are shockingly inaccurate. But what is more frustrating for me than things being outright inaccurate is I'll see major media outlets get break really big stories, but because they don't know the types of questions to ask, they miss the bigger story within the story. Uh, then journalists like me need to do follow-ups, which is great for me. Like I've gotten a lot of business over the years doing follow-ups on like AP coverage that in my mind missed the bigger story, um, which again, it's been great for me personally, but it would be nice if the, the big outlet that has way more resources knew the questions to ask, to dig deeper beyond just, you know, superficial things. Yeah. And it seems like the writers are on such, you know, they're writing such diverse types of topics. So there's usually on unreasonable timelines too. Exactly. And they're under stress and timelines and pressure to get the story done. And there's not, you know, a lot of times there's not an editor to even help the writer or a researcher, you know, today's journalists, you know, this, they're they're wearing 10 different hats compared to how it was, you know, five or 10 years ago. So they don't have the luxury of really researching on their own. So you're right. I think it really 
falls into the hands of and the responsibility of the, the brand or the PR person to help educate the journalists as much as they'll allow you to. Give them the tools. You know, that's where press packets are really great. Like I love it when a PR person just doesn't just hit me with, you know, the pitch or the press release, but they actually have like some attachments, some photos, a PDF describing things a little more in detail. If someone's going to contact me about a, a study or something like that, if they actually have access to that original content, that's huge. So yeah, like for, for me as a journalist, like I really want to be educated by a PR professional. And I already know a lot about this, but my view is you can never know too much. You and know, make it as easy as possible. Life, um, you really need to know it. Making it as easy as possible for the journalist mm-hmm. to write the story and giving them all the tools. What are some other tips? Some other, you know, I was just thinking when you were talking, you know, one of the things that I would add to that list would be a fact sheet, whether it's a product fact sheet, totally. maybe an ingredient fact fact sheet, a backgrounder, a history. I mean, yeah. all of that is so I think critical to helping the journalists put together their story. Yeah. So here's one example. Like I recently got a, a pitch from a uh, pre-roll company or like they're selling papers, you know, for rolling joints. And it didn't mention anything about a study that came out over the summer showing really high levels of heavy metal contamination, pesticide, pesticide contamination in rolling papers. So I fired back like, Hey, I'd be interested to see some samples, but what's your sourcing? You know, are you familiar with a study that came out? Have your papers been tested? No response. And you know, you should expect that, like, you should be familiar with the market enough to know what kind of question, hard questions you're going to mm-hmm. get. Because, you know, at least in the cannabis space, you're going to get those hard questions. That's going to happen. Mainstream press, not as much. But those of us in the cannabis space, like myself, who are here for medical reasons, who we very much view this as a medicine, we're going to ask those kind of questions about sourcing. Is it organic? When you say organic, is it USDA organic? Are you using organic practices? Dragonfly Earth Medicine certified? You know, what do you mean when you say organic? Because there's a lot of gray area around that. And technically speaking, cannabis can't be labeled organic at all. CBD can if it's grown USDA organic. And that's like the split, you know, USDA organic versus people throwing the word organic around as a type of greenwashing. And there's a, if you don't know the term greenwashing, it's basically means to make something sound more environmentally friendly than it is. And it's a big problem in a lot of industries, especially in the cannabis industry. A lot of companies make a lot of claims about products being, you know, all kinds of, you know, organic practices and whatnot. But at the end of the day, none of it can be certified organic. And there's no real standards exist, but unless a company actually has those standards, and that's my point, there's a lot of companies who haven't passed any sort of a standard. They're not sun plus earth certified or any of the numerous other certifications. And they'll still say, organic practices, which then leaves the question, okay, what does that, what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's great advice. One of the other topics we were talking about before we started recording, I think is a good point to make is we're talking about visuals and, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're not in the space, you know, you have your own library because you've been writing about this topic and studying it and self-educated for however, you know, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're a journalist writing a story and you're a PR person pitching them, I, I mean, I think how important is it to have great visuals? Yeah. I mean, like even as a student researcher, if I came across good public domain images, I would save them along with the sourcing information. So when I had to source them later, I could actually say public domain from Wikipedia taken by this photographer. You know, that, that's the goal. Even with public domain images, theoretically, you should still be citing where you got it from, 
who took the photo, if that's known. And there's some ambiguity around this, but generally speaking, if it's a federal uh, agency that takes a photo, you do have a public domain to it. Don't quote me on that. I'm not an attorney. But last I checked, there was a lot of leeway to use federal government photos, but it depends on the agency and statewide, like depends on the agency. So, you know, if you're a journalist, look up what those rules are and see what government photos you can have access to. And that's actually how a lot of those images get on Wikipedia originally. They are from like drug raids and stuff like that, because we have a right to use those images as public domain. Any other tips on visuals, providing visuals? I mean, we understand the sourcing part, but just what types of visuals yeah. do you like or not like? What's, what I are mean, some irritating things that happen? <laughs> oh, irritating visuals. I mean, I'm more irritated by like the visuals people, you know, will editorialize with their words. You know, the stoner stereotypes, like that's something that needs to go. Any images that perpetuate uh, a stoner stereotype, we, we're way past that point. We are way, way past that point. And I mean, yeah, I might make a weed pun once in a while, but it's like really tastefully done stuff these days, stuff that I'm hoping the cannabis crowd will will joke will joke out with me, you know? But it's like, it is painful to read an article where like every line, every sentence, every paragraph has just one after another after another joke about, you know, it's a growing problem in our state. You know, it's just, <laughs> we get it. It's a plant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that needs to go and any visuals that would perpetuate that and um there, i've definitely seen it you know some of those sensationalized stuff usually by like your local press where it's like weed problems in blah 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 county and you'll see some visual that's just like a bunch of different things yeah mm -hmm. um any those of this stuff around halloween candy with cannabis that needs to Go, that's not a documented problem. I mean, it's still a bigger problem in Halloween is the razor blades and candy thing. Like that, that is still a bigger problem than weed candy. If you actually look at most of the cases of weed candy, what happens is kids find it at home, not on Halloween. They take their parents' stuff, then they bring it to school. The issue there is parents leaving their stuff in such a place where their kids have access to it. It's really yeah. an issue of parenting. I grew up around cannabis my whole life. I never got in my parents' stash. Why? because they hid it from me. My dad also had a gun. I never got that because he hid it from me. You know, it's part of being a parent. There are some things you don't want your kids to access, so you hide them from them. Makes total sense. Where do you see the future of cannabis and CBD in the next year, five years? Like, What, what can we expect in your opinion? More, much more than just CBD. People are already looking at CBG as the next big cannabinoid. Legally speaking, CBG and other minor cannabinoids are actually more legal than CBD because Epidiolex is a drug approved by the FDA. There is an argument the FDA is trying to make that, oh, well, CBD is a drug. It's not a supplement. That argument can't be made about any other cannabinoid right now. CBG, THCA, all these other non-psychoactive, less regulated cannabinoids, we can have robust markets for those because it's not as scheduled, or at least it's kind of a gray area. And there's already companies out there developing very, very CBG-rich strains. 
And as I mentioned, CBG can easily be converted to CBC even, which could allow access to more CBC products because CBC is kind of hard to obtain from the plant itself. And we're also getting to a really cool age of plant chemistry where cannabis is getting real chemists for the first time. So you're seeing some really cool extracted products, purer products than we ever saw before. So I'd say in the next few years, you're going to see a lot more than just CBD products. Uh, purer, higher quality, less contaminated products than ever before, especially because you're going to see more lab testing in a CBD, CBD space, in the hemp space. You know, as I understand it right now, most companies, it's kind of an optional thing. There's not a strict requirement like there is with, say, cannabis in California, where there's very strict testing standards. I think you're going to see more testing of, of hemp products. I think we, I'd be surprised if we didn't. So overall, from a customer standpoint, costs should go down product quality is going to go up and diversity of products is going to go up in the hemp space without a doubt. And hopefully information will be more accurate. I would hope so. I mean, right now we're seeing a lot of companies where education is kind of at a core of their brand identity. And if that continues, great, because as we get all these new products, we're going to need more education. You know, we've spent a lot of time educating people on CBD. People are still wrapping their heads around that and still learning. And now we're going to hit them with CBG and CBC and you know, THCV and all these other different cannabinoids out there. It's a lot for folks to take in. So there's a lot of education to be done. Yeah. I'm located in Florida. So here we still have to get the medical marijuana license, but that's what they call it. And so my husband and I are actually just in the process of getting it. And it's quite a process, you know, not, not it's not too difficult, but it's interesting because I'm not going to name the place where we went to get the the card, but now we're signed up for their newsletter. And it's, Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought it was pretty interesting and informative and it's, you know, basically, you know, CBD and weight loss or, you know, all these different topics. Right. And so I forward them to Will with OI Energetics and I'm Mm -hmm. like, Hey, what do you think about this? And he's like completely inaccurate. Like so many false statements, like so much misinformation. And I mean, you know, here in Florida, like they're the sort, like, this is like my authoritative source. And, you know, it's, it's not maybe that it's like a hundred percent wrong, but they're swaying you in one direction to think something when it's Uh, not objective. Well, you know, there's a tip that I kind of glossed over earlier. You know, if you're reading an article and this is something I always pay attention to, are they linking to the original source in that newsletter? You know, like, are they linking to studies or other things that are backing up their claim? For me, if I see someone making a whole bunch of claims without some substantiation of those claims, that's when I just stop reading it because that's when I'm like, oh, this is one of those opinion pieces masquerading as fact. Because if they had facts, they would be providing links to what those facts, like for me as a journalist, that's what I do. That's how I was trained to be a journalist. And generally when I'm reading well-written articles, that's what they do. So it's kind of a red flag if people aren't, you know, substantiating their claims. That's definitely something I would say in terms of evaluating sources. And it can be great to actually go to those original sources and you can see, well, do those original sources actually say what they're saying it says? Because I've seen news outlets, I mean, report cannabis studies, complete paradox opposite from what the study actually said. Scary. Yeah, it yeah. is. So, I mean, I so, think the, the point is, if you're a consumer, it's important that you don't just believe everything that you're reading. And if you definitely. are a communication professional, journalist, it's important to, for this specific topic, CBD, cannabis, hemp, that you're you're educating yourself and, and making sure that you're doing your research and mm-hmm. linking to some of these sources other than, you know, maybe just this random source that isn't an official study before you publish your story. Absolutely. You know, just do, do a little background research, you know, see what's out there. It's really important. I mean, especially if like from a PR standpoint, you know, your goal is public relations 
and anything you can do to help prevent a public relations issue, great. Like if you're working for a vape brand, do some research on the Evali epidemic that happened uh, back in 2019 before COVID started up. Evali was a huge lung issue in the vape space, usually not regulated vapes, but it's really important to you know, have language together around that, be ready for those concerns because it was a huge, huge thing for the media, like all year long. So, you know, do research on your market sector, on your company, be ready for your hard questions because, you know, people are, are going to ask them, uh, especially on social media. We live very much in a call out culture. People are not afraid to use social media to call out the biggest of companies on wrongdoing. So, right, you know, which could be a PR disaster. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, and we've seen that happen time and again. So just be ready for that to happen. You know, know what you need to know to properly do all the PR you have to for your clients. Awesome. That's great advice, Mitchell. So where can we follow you? Where are you speaking at any events? Have any classes? So I regularly teach at Oaksterdam University on various topics. I have a class coming up in their next semester. If anyone is interested in learning more about the methods of cannabis ingestion, that's going to be this class. I am on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, you know, all your big four social media channels. Feel free to follow me. It's usually at Mitchell Colbert, might be at Mitchell R. Colbert, depending on the, you know, the platform. Let's see. I don't have any um, conferences that I'm slated to speak at, but regularly am speaking at different conferences, although that's kind of up in the air with the prolonged pandemic. But yeah, um, follow me on social media. If I have any big speaking engagements coming up, they'll be posted there. Okay, great. Well, we will also put the links in the show notes. So thank you so much for being our guest. And I definitely learned a lot. I learned something new every day when it comes to this topic. So even PR, I learned something new every day. (laughs) It's it's a constant evolution. Yes. Okay. Well, namaste, have a great day. And we will catch up with you. I think in another episode, we have to have another interview, get an update. Namaste. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social PR Secrets. If you like what you heard, check out the book on Amazon or follow our blog at socialprsecrets.com. This episode was sponsored by The Buyer Group, a social PR agency striving to keep our balance in the digital world, practicing public relations, social media, and search marketing, while occasionally drinking a glass of wine or two for the best creativity and results. Thank you all for tuning in. If you would like to get a free chapter of Social PR Secrets, go to socialprsecrets.com slash free.